Pray with me. Loving Father, we come before you in utter dependence. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey what you set before us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning. This uh, will be the last message uh, on the matter of racial injustice and reconciliation for this round of messages, but it certainly won't be the last time that you'll hear from us on this critically important issue. This message is directed to Christians about Christians. This message is not about the responsibility of Christians to address division and injustice between people in our culture and in the world. And the purpose and point of this message is not to undo anything that has already been said about that very assignment in the, in the two previous messages. If you haven't watched those two videos yet, I'd, I'd urge you to do so. Now, some of what I hope to show you from God's Word this morning um, may not be easy for you to swallow. It hasn't been for me. But I earnestly ask that you come at this with the humility to have your assumptions and predispositions changed by God. Not by me, but by God. As always, it'll be incumbent on you to test what I say to you in light of God's Word. Keep what comes from Him and take anything of your thinking or of my words that doesn't line up with His Word and cast it as far away from you as you can throw it. <laughs> when I watched the interaction in last Sunday's online panel discussion between white and African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom have known each other for decades, I couldn't help noticing what was blatantly missing from that discussion when you compare it with the interactions that we're seeing in the world and in much of the church at large. What was missing was heat. It wasn't passion that was missing. There were some very heartfelt uh, things that were shared in that discussion. What was missing was heat, anger and resentment and demands and discontent. What we all got to witness instead as we watched that video was a group of men and women from very different experiences and histories enjoying each other, enjoying their oneness in Christ. There were no chips on anyone's shoulders. Not because any of them have a cavalier attitude regarding the history of oppression of African Americans in America, and not because any of them are minimizing God's assignment to His church to address those injustices. That assignment is actually what the discussion was about. But the reason that the sparks and heat were missing is because those men and women have all already spent many years of their lives in a condition of already accomplished reconciliation with their brothers and sisters in Christ across every category of experience in history. Beloved, this message is an appeal to all of God's redeemed to be like that. It's about that already accomplished reconciliation. My thinking as I prepared for this message is heavily, heavily indebted to Brother Vody Bauckham for his extraordinary message titled Racial Reconciliation from Ephesians 2. He actually presented that message a year and a half ago in January of 2019, but you'd think that he was responding to events that have happened just in the last few weeks. Some would surely say to the, that a white privileged preacher like Tom Wright has no business even attempting to address the kinds of issues that Dr. Bauckham addressed in that message, because I don't possess the shared history and experience with African Americans that he possesses. 
but his exhortations to the church in that message were explicitly not grounded in his shared history and experience with African Americans. They were grounded in his identity as a redeemed member of the spiritual household of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ, in which God says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, male nor female, because we have all been made one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 was Dr. Balcom's primary scripture reference in that message. It's the same primary reference that we'll be getting to a little later in this message. That passage was originally delivered by God to an overwhelmingly Gentile audience through a Jew named Paul. The very fact that God chose Paul, who declared of himself that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, to be his ambassador to Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire is a profoundly significant demonstration of the divine genius of God on this whole matter of reconciling people who have been divided. The resurrected Jesus didn't appear in blinding light to a Gentile and send him to deliver the life-giving gospel of, of Christ to Gentiles on God's behalf so they could hear it from someone who was just like them. Now, Jesus appeared to a Jew a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a rock star among the Jewish religious elite whose entire life before Christ had been spent with the firm conviction that he was the cream of the crop of the greatest people group on earth, the people of God. God sent that man to the Gentiles who knew nothing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Friends, if you think that the divide between Jews and Gentiles in the first generation of the Christian church was a small thing compared with the divide between white Americans and African Americans today, you simply don't know what was going on in Jesus' day and Paul's day. One of the most compelling artifacts that has been preserved from the ancient Jerusalem temple that was turned to rubble by the Romans in 70 A.D., less than a decade after Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, is a, is a stone plaque that was placed at every opening in a, a short stone wall, a balustrade, that, was, that separated the outer perimeter of the temple compound known as the Court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple grounds as you moved closer to the temple building itself in which the glory of God dwelled in the midst of his people. Here's an English translation of the words that are found on that plaque that's still preserved from the original temple. It says, No foreigner, the idea, the idea being no non-Jew, may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. Even a Gentile who had converted to the Jewish faith could not come inside that dividing wall to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he did, he forfeited his life. Whatever reconciliation was possible between Jews and Gentiles, there was no possibility that the Jews would ever treat a Gentile as their equal in the eyes of God. And that hard and fast distinction was enforced on pain of death. Based on what we find in Acts chapter 21, a Jew, a Jew who brought a Gentile inside that dividing wall was forfeiting his own life as well. In the last part of Acts 21, a group of Jews at the Jerusalem temple seized the Apostle Paul, and they began beating him. One of the accusations that produced that beating was the false accusation that Paul had brought a Gentile named Trophimus 
inside that dividing wall at the temple. Verse 31 says that the Jews who laid hold of Paul were seeking to kill him. In other words, they didn't merely intend to beat him. They intended to beat him to death. Devout Jews didn't worship alongside Gentiles. Devout Jews didn't marry Gentiles. Devout Jews certainly didn't eat with Gentiles. Devout Jews only associated with Gentiles when practicality demanded it. Otherwise, they steadfastly stayed within their own community, the community that they believed was the special set-apart people of God. And, and where had they gotten such an idea? From God. The one who from the beginning of their existence as a nation had commanded them to be a set-apart people to him. That's what the word holy means. It, set, it means set-apart. And while the Jews certainly milked the distinction between them and Gentiles for all they could, and they certainly carried it in a direction that God never commanded, the clear reality was that the fundamental distinction between Jew and Gentile was created by God. And the foundation upon which that distinction was built was what Paul called the law of commandments contained in ordinances here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Back in September of 2005, some of us in this room got a vivid picture of just how tangibly those commandments served to divide Jew from Gentile. The week after Hurricane Katrina decimated New Orleans and the area around it, several of us from CBC drove out to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to serve as volunteers at a college for the, for the deaf, uh, which had been set up as a staging area for the medical disaster relief teams that FEMA was bringing in from all over the country to send them to the most uh, devastated areas of New Orleans and the surrounding communities. Our job as volunteers was to do all that we could to simply provide for the physical needs of those medical teams as they cycled in and were sent out. We helped uh, cook and serve hundreds of, of meals at various odd times of the day, depending on whenever a busload of new medical workers would arrive at the, the facility. One of those groups of workers included two men from a strict Orthodox Jewish sect. At each meal cycle, after we had served the meals for a hundred or so people, these two Jewish men would bring their separate pots and pans and utensils and food, and they would cook their kosher meals and eat them by themselves. They couldn't cook ceremonially unclean food in any pan that had ever been used uh, they couldn't cook ceremonially clean food in any pan that had ever been used to cook unclean food. Now, what effect did that have on their interaction with the non-Jews and even the less law-constrained Jews on their own medical team? Well, it served to divide them in, in a rather tangible way. Where did the laws that so sharply divided Jews from Gentiles come from? From God. Read Leviticus chapter 11. In Vodi Bauckham's message that I mentioned earlier, he pointed out that the racial distinctions that divide people today are arbitrary. They're created by men. But the distinction between Jew and Gentile was real. It was created by God. He went on to explain what he meant by arbitrary distinctions between the races. He told the story of the Hutus and the Tutsis, two people groups from the region of Rwanda, Africa. In the mid-1980s, the Hutus committed the genocidal slaughter of more than 800,000 Tutsis. 
The rage that produced that genocide came out of generations of oppression of the poorer Hutu majority population of the region at the hands of the Tutsis, the privileged minority that had long been closely allied with those in power. But in a PBS NewsHour interview in 1999, a Congolese professor named George Ezangola explained that the Tutsis and the Hutu are the same people. They're not from different racial lines, but from the same. The differences that drove one group to treat the other as an enemy race and to very nearly annihilate them were man-made differences. Dr. Bauckham went on then to point out that the actual genetic difference even between white people and black people, no matter where on earth they are from, is tiny. And I did a little research this week to, to understand how tiny <laughs> that difference is, and the answer was stunning. A recent Harvard University article titled How Science and Genetics Are Reshaping the Race Debate of the 21st Century explains that every human being on Earth shares 99.9% of his or her DNA with every other human being on Earth. That means that all of the countless atrocities that have been committed in the history of mankind on the ground of racial distinctions have drawn those lines on the basis of actual differences between people that are determined by variations in DNA of less than one-tenth of one percent. Now, if you shared 99.9% of anything else about your life with another person, would you say you were mostly alike or mostly different in regard to that thing? How big a shared thing is your humanness? That's why Dr. Bauckham says that racial divisions are arbitrary divisions. By the way, how did we come to have all but one-tenth of one percent of our genetic code in common with every other human? Think maybe it's because we all came from the same parents, just like God says we did? All right, so if the stark divisions between people groups didn't come from anything as objective as genetics, where did they come from? Well, as our brother Terence Ford said so eloquently in last week's discussion, what we're dealing with here is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And because it's a sin problem, counting on sinners to fix it is a losing proposition. I've heard a whole lot of passionate appeals in my life that say that we must celebrate the diversity between human beings. In fact, one of the most often proposed solutions to the disunity between groups of people is for us to know and celebrate the things that make one group different from another. The idea is that if we'll just get to really know one another's histories and sorrows and accomplishments, we'll stop hating each other and we'll start understanding and loving each other. Sounds really great. But there's a fundamental flaw in that plan. And the flaw is that when God is pushed out of the picture, diversity does not unite, it divides. And that's actually by design. Stick with me, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Since the only meaningful diversity that exists among humans doesn't trace back to genetics, how did most of the diversity that does distinguish one people from another come into being? The answer is, as a judgment from the hand of God, because of mankind's grievous mishandling of unity. 
The last time that men came anywhere close to global unity was when the capital city of the human race was a place called Babel. Genesis chapters 10 and 11 are all about the separation of the peoples that, that occurred at Babel. Chapter 10 narrates the second expansion of humanity, starting from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah, after the great flood. Genesis 10 verse 5 says that from them, the nations were, quote, separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Verse 25 says that in the, in the days of a man named Peleg, whose name means division, the earth was divided. The repeated and operative word throughout chapter 10, which is known as the Table of Nations, is a word that means separation or division. But it isn't until the beginning of chapter 11 that Moses records for us the actual cause of that separation, the division of people into distinct languages and groups and nations. In Genesis chapter 11, we learn that after the flood, as the population of mankind again expanded, people stayed together. Verse 1 says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and they settled together in one place. And they said to one another, verse 4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Mankind, a united mankind, pushed God out of the picture, and they sought to make a name for themselves through their unity. They resolved through strength and numbers to build a tower to heaven together as one. And what messed up their plan? What messed up their plan? God. Verse 7 is an astonishing statement that merits our undivided attention. Our triune God, who always exists in perfect holiness, in three persons, as one undivided essence, look down upon the unholy unity of mankind, and the following divine conversation occurred between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. God said, Come, let us go down there, uh, go down, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, in case any of us missed it, God's explicit purpose in diversity was not unity. It was division. God's explicit purpose in diversity was not unity. It was division. The starting point for the actual diversity that exists between human beings, diversity of language and culture and history rather than race, was the result of a judgment against sinful human beings for using their shared language and history and culture as a way to be done with God. So here's my question, brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we supposed to be celebrating a judgment that God imposed on men because we abused unity? You know, like, like an annual banished from the garden parade or a bring back the great flood day? And will our celebration of the diversity that God imposed on mankind as a judgment because of our arrogance actually produce a good and desirable unity among men?
not if God has anything to say about it. Friends, God has no intention of helping lost men achieve unity while they continue to turn their backs on him. Let me say that again. God has no intention of helping lost men achieve unity while they continue turning their backs on him. In fact, God is the immovable object who will guarantee that such unity cannot and does not happen, just like he did at Babel. Why did God execute a judgment that made people different at the one point in all of human history after the fall when they were most unified? It's simple. Because he made us for himself. He made us for himself. The God who eternally exists as three persons in perfect oneness, in other words, perfect unity in perfect diversity, created mankind, male and female, in perfect complementarity. One of them fulfilled what was lacking in the other. And there's nothing lacking in the Godhead, but there is certain, there are certainly things lacking in us. God created mankind, male and female, to complete each other so that it took the two of them to fulfill their mission on earth. He made two human beings whom he had very deliberately created to be different in critically important respects, one flesh. The God-ordained differences between them drove them together, not apart. God's original design for, for mankind was for unity in diversity, but the one and only way that diversity produces and nurtures good and desirable unity is when God is running the show. I'll come back to that shortly because it's really important. But the couple who had everything rebelled against God. They replaced God's word and God's authority with their word and their authority, and God cursed them because of that rebellion. And as part of that curse, the God-ordained differences between them became catalysts for enmity instead of unity. Just read Genesis chapter 3. And ever since then, that's exactly what differences between human beings, even the tiniest differences, have been doing. Driving people apart. Are those differences cause for celebration? I'm talking to Christians here. Are you and I supposed to celebrate what the world celebrates? Just because they tell us to celebrate it? Or are we supposed to celebrate what God celebrates? Do we expect those to be the same? Why would we expect them to be the same? For the rest of our time together this morning, my goal is for us to behold and to agree with God about the reconciliation between people that God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 presents two cycles of soul-transforming events that move from terrible to magnificent. The chapter starts out with the terrible. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 says that we, all of us, started out dead in our sin. It says we all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the des desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were all by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, all of mankind was in the same place. Then in verse 4 come the words, but God. And at that point, we move from the terrible to the magnificent. 
but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us together with, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that we would walk in them. And then you fast forward to chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What calling? Let's see. Here's the calling. We were dead. God made us alive by grace and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places where he's going to bless us with his grace for all eternity. That's our calling. And the walk that he commands of us is all about unity. The second cycle that moves from terrible to magnificent in Ephesians 2 starts in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's as bad as bad gets this side of eternal judgment. Without hope and without God in the world. And then in verse 13 come the words, but now in Christ Jesus. In other words, but God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By what? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Those verses are staggering. All right, so according to that, to, to that passage, how do human beings come to be at peace and to live in unity with one another? Well, let me read just verses 14 through 16 again. Listen carefully. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who made both one. We didn't make each other one. Christ made us one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So how do men come to be at peace with one another? Christ. Only Christ. When I was a young man and a, and a baby Christian in the 70s, a, a Christian music group called the Imperials had a song that said, there will never be any peace until God is seated at the conference table. Now, I liked the song, but I realized even then that there was a fundamental error in that line of the song. There won't be any conference table because peace among men is not a collaboration between men and God. It's just God. It's just the blood of Christ. 
And here's the best part of it, beloved. The reconciliation that God alone creates already is. Vody Bauckham said racial reconciliation isn't something that you and I have to achieve. It's something you and I have to believe because Christ already achieved it. He said, we don't have to achieve racial reconciliation. It exists. It has been achieved. It is a reality that we must walk in. It's not something we have to accomplish. It's already been accomplished. Is that important? <laughs> Beloved, that's a worldview changer. Here is our present reality in Christ. Here is what God celebrates about us whom he has made to be his spiritual household. Here's what we are called to celebrate and to be diligent, to nurture, and to protect. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 5, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what we're called to celebrate, brothers and sisters. And that's already accomplished. Now, I want to come back to the matter of diversity. Diversity redeemed. Diversity redeemed. If you're still mulling over something I already said because it gave you heartburn, I'll ask you to table that for a moment and track with me here. The reconciliation, the oneness that God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ doesn't end our diversity. It redeems our diversity. At Babel, God made people different. He confused their languages and scattered them in order to keep them from being one apart from him. In the body of Christ, like in the garden, God makes us different in order to nurture our oneness. Diversity now drives unity. When God redeems us and brings us into the community of the reconciled, both the differences that already existed between us and the new differences that he engineers in us become catalysts to oneness. Having miraculously made us one with each other, he gives us a love for one another that delights in sharing each other's burdens of every kind, as well as each other's joys. In Acts chapter 4, the believers in Jerusalem shared their money and possessions in common so that no need would be left unmet. The things that made them different became instruments to make them more the same. That's exactly what Paul says is the purpose of financial giving to meet needs. In one of the greatest passages on giving in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul praises the financially poor Macedonian believers for generously giving out of their poverty to support the even poorer and more persecuted believers in Jerusalem. He uses the liberality and generosity of those Macedonian saints in giving as an object lesson to the not-so-generous Corinthian saints calling them to be like the Macedonians. And in verses 13 and 14, here's what Paul says to those Corinthians. He says, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. 
at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Did you catch the wording, by way of equality, and that there may be equality? In both those passages, Acts 4 and 2 Corinthians 8, there was a diversity, a differential that existed among the people of God with regard to financial wherewithal. And what did God's people do about that diversity? They became less diverse. The same thing happens in the church when we share one another's burdens and sorrows and joys. We move closer to one another in shared experience, not further away. Romans 12 verses 15 and 16 commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. The next verse says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. We share one another's burdens and griefs so that we become more alike in both suffering and joy, not more different. Hebrews 13.3 instructs us to, quote, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Do you know that the, that the Greek word that we translate sympathy, sympatheo, means to suffer with, to suffer with. We share one another's burdens and griefs, and we share one another's joys, so that we become more alike in joy, not more different. And we share one another's stories. Not to play a game of one-upsmanship, not to establish our credentials so that people will listen to us, but to exalt Christ. And as we share one another's stories, we delight in the sameness of our one salvation and our one calling in Christ, even knowing that there are substantial differences in our experience and history. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul shared his unique personal story not to assert that God's call on him was special compared with his call on other Christians, but to assert that in spite of his radically different history from most of those to whom he was writing, God's call upon him was the same as his call upon them. In verse 6, he said that the, the Gentile saints had been, quote, called by the grace of Christ. In verse 15, talking about his own calling, he said that he, Paul, had been called through his grace. As he laid out his own personal testimony, Paul explained that Jesus had replaced his zeal for his ancestral traditions, which had made Gentiles his mortal enemies, with zeal for the gospel. The exact same gospel that the Galatian Gentiles had come to believe. Paul had no interest in establishing his credentials on the basis of his history and experience, but rather in declaring Christ's authority over all, both Jew and Gentile, including over the Jewish church leaders in Jerusalem, like James and Peter. Beloved, I don't build myself up at your expense, even in ways in areas in which I may have suffered more than you. I welcome you as my brother and sister to enter into my suffering as you welcome me to enter into yours. We're not creating unity through that sharing. We're walking in the unity that God already created. We're walking in the truth that he has already made us into one new man in Christ 
And that removes the threat that our diversity used to represent. Love replaces fear. Love replaces resentment. Love replaces anger. Love replaces discontent. That's exactly why we didn't see the same kinds of sparks and heat in that wonderful interaction last Sunday between longtime brothers and sisters in Christ who are of different racial and experiential backgrounds. Because those brothers and sisters know that God has already made them one forever in Christ. When we believe that we are one, we want to know one another as personally and as genuinely as we possibly can. We want to learn about one another's struggles, including struggles that have resulted from long-standing sins that we have either committed or ignored. And because we're still doing battle against our as yet unredeemed flesh and against the world and against the devil, we know that we are prone to not see where we have contributed to the struggle and suffering of those with whom we are now one in Christ. But the threat of having our eyes open to such things has wonderfully been removed by Christ. See, because I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ, I have been freed up to face the truth about my sin, past, present, and future. And in the same way, because I know that God has already and forever made me one together with you, I've been freed up to face the truth about my sins against you. We want to have the light of God shown on all things, even on our most grievous failures. And we get to do so knowing that the terrible threat of having those things exposed to that brilliant light has been removed. We know that God's grace is greater than our sin. We know that we are no longer defined by the wreckage behind. God redeems our diversity. He turns it into an instrument to nurture our oneness, but he also creates new diversity. Diversity that's sanctified from the get-go. God engineers into each of his children miraculous new differences when he brings us into his spiritual household. Those differences are called spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit, by His perfect design, gives different gifts to different people in the body of Christ. He, the Spirit, brilliantly uses the differences between those gifts to create an interdependence that makes us need each other in order to carry out our mission on earth. The differences contribute to our oneness, just like Adam and Eve needed everything that made them the same and everything that made them different in order to carry out their mission on earth. <laughs> All right, let's talk about how we who have been made one respond to a world that is bitterly divided. First, and I did this a couple of messages ago as well, but I, first, let's consider what we do not do. What we do not do. We do not tell the world that they can achieve unity apart from union with Christ. God is not going to let that happen. We do not congratulate the world for its valiant efforts to create a new Babel. Too much of what we're hearing from professing Christians on the matter of racial reconciliation sounds just like what this godless world is saying to itself. And that can't be right. We have once again been handed a marvelous opportunity to speak the truth in love 
into a world that is overwhelmed with a lie. Let's not blow that assignment by praising the lie instead of the truth. If our solution to the racial divide sounds anything like the world's solution, we are blowing our assignment and we are per perpetuating a man-centered heresy. If the solution that we're proclaiming for the alienation between men and men is different in any way from the solution that we're proclaiming for the alienation between men and God, it's the wrong solution. Because the only way that men become reconciled to men in the heart rather than merely in the behavior is when God reconciles them to himself. Listen as I, in conclusion, read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 one more time. It's short. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. That's what we get to say to one another and to the world, beloved, and we need to be saying it courageously and without compromise, no matter how any man or any government responds. Purely by the grace of God, we have come to know and to trust the reconciling love of God in Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who destroys the division between us. He alone is the one who has already accomplished reconciliation between men. Dear Father, humble us so that we hear you and respond to you, so that we celebrate and proclaim only one reconciliation between men and God and between men and men our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.